Welcome to the Valve Chronicles by Clay Valve, your trusted partner since 1936 for the world's highest quality automatic control valves. Join us as we share insights and discuss products that are often invisible, but always essential. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Valve Chronicles, a podcast from Clayval. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Now, this is the second episode in a series that looks at the differences in aircraft fueling operations between the United States and Europe. And if you missed the first episode in this series, we provided a broad overview of this topic. So you want to make sure to go back and check out that first episode as well. Now, today we're taking a look at cultural and health and safety differences between these two regions of the world. And let me welcome back to the show today, Tom Boriak, Global Market manager for fueling at Clayval and Richard Hooten, market manager of aviation and ground fueling for EMEA with Clayval Europe. Tom and Richard, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, good morning, Tyler. Glad to be back. Hello, Tyler. It is not morning in Richard's part of the world, but it is for Tom and I, and so we'll, uh, we'll we'll treat it as such. But guys, let's kick off today by hearing about some of your experiences in the field, because I know that you've both spent you know significant time in this industry, and I'm sure you're bound to have some stories about the differences we see in fueling operations on either side of the pond. So let me kick it over to you guys. Uh, Tom, maybe kick us off with, uh, with a story or two of just some of the differences that you've seen in how we manage things uh, in, in these two regions of the world. Yeah, I think, you know, being in shops uh, all around the world in, in the U.S., I came into Clayval, being in some of the shops in Europe there with Richard, uh, seeing how they do things. Uh, it is a big variant. Um, some of that is, uh, we'll, we'll dig into it. Some of it will be nurture nature. Again, taking some words from Richard there, and I'll let him dig into that here in just a minute. But, you know, we all have OSHA type entities in our in our governments or in our countries that govern workplace safety, uh, employee safety. Uh, heck, in the U.S., not only do we have the federal OSHA, we have state OSHAs. In Europe, while they're all looking at employee safety, both in Europe and the U.S., they have actually lifting restrictions in some countries and, and how much an operator can actually lift unassisted uh, and what kind of, if, is that overhead or is that, you know, bending? There's a lot more uh, information and guidelines there. And so what they've done in Europe is they've accommodated that marketplace using tools um, such as a carriage or a clad for a coupler. I think in the Netherlands, uh, their Schiphol airport, they actually have types of pantographs on their fueling equipment to help reduce that lifting moment for their operators. What we see is, okay, we're taking better care of the team members and the, and the operators there in Europe with some of those, but what those practices have led to are tools and components that actually take better care of the equipment. So I'll, I'll use an example of a coupler, for example, here. The coupler goes onto a hydrant pit valve. It's the primary pressure control device. It weighs about 30 pounds by itself. So you add a four inch hose to it or a three inch hose to it, you put fuel in it, it starts adding up in weight pretty quick. Well, in the US, uh, I've done it. I've done it hundreds and hundreds of times uh, when I was a fueler and managed operations. You know, we, we, we schlepped that uh, coupler and hose from the fueling equipment to the across the ramp to the hydrant pit. Yeah, sometimes it's close, but other times it's not. Uh, you might pull out an entire 50 foot hose full of fuel with that coupler. That can lead to back injuries uh, or worker injuries. And then what happens is they get it over there. And a lot of times operators in the U.S. will just drop it onto the hydrant pit valve. And that ends up damaging the components or the assemblies and to a point where they need 
to be replaced sooner or need more maintenance. Whereas in the Europe where they have these protections in place and they've put these tools in place, a carriage uh, or a clad, for example, on the uh, coupler, which allows the operator to not carry the coupler, but actually roll the coupler from the fueling vehicle to the uh, hydrant pit valve and actually set it down. Uh, there's not near the impact and we see the components lasting much longer. So not only are the components, the wear and tear going down on them in Europe, we're also seeing less workplace injuries over there uh, than we are in the US. So it really drives some interesting takes. And we know that operators in the workplace and operators, organizations, uh, end of plane organizations, they're focused. It's not that they're not focused on workplace safety and operator safety because they absolutely are. It's just a different approach. And again, this could, we, we could just keep going because it gets into some of the different culture aspects as well. But uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll kind of let the conversation drive from there. But that's kind of an example of, of some of the variances we're seeing and what it means. And Richard, what, what about you from, from your perspective, just responding to, to Tom and just some of the differences that, that he's seen there. Um, from your perspective over on the European side, you, you know, he, he mentioned uh, just, uh, just how maybe that, that approach is different from, uh, you know, what, uh, what workers are asked to do and, and that sort of thing. Can you speak to that just from your experience? Yeah, it's, it's extremely different. I was listening to Tom. I, I followed him um, very carefully up until he said the word schlup. And being from Europe, I don't think we have the word schlup over here, but I think he means pull, but I'm not sure. Anyways, um, Tom's completely correct. And, you know, on the subject of carriage assemblies, Tom and I have spoken about this quite a lot. It's funny that that particular subject is an interesting one because we do have the wheels. The wheels flip down and you use the wheels to drag the coupler across the tarmac. And, and in the US, you guys just don't use it, as Tom rightly said, but over here, it's used almost on every vehicle. And, and I remember in, in Clayval and also with a company that I was working with previous to that, but within the same industry, we were planning these carriage assemblies together. And uh, the, the work and the detail that goes into something like that. So these are spring-loaded wheels and you drag the coupler. And if the spring-loaded wheels don't come at the, down at the right pitch, if they're not wide enough, um, what happens is when they drag the couplers, the couplers kind of topple to the side, they nosedive into the floor. Even would you believe, Tyler, if the if the casters aren't wide enough, then the casters get caught in the expansion gaps of the concrete apron as you're dragging it. Now, all of these things, you know, I can remember speaking to my friends in the US and driving them crazy with this story. And, and they were saying, Richard, it's it's essentially, this is a glorified skateboard. How difficult can this be? But the truth is, <laughs> if all of these things aren't right, and if when you drag that coupler along, it nosedives or it topples or whatever, then over here in our part of the world, users just won't use that coupler because of this silly little set of wheels. So, you know, those kind of things are extremely, extremely important to us. And it's the difference between someone using that piece of equipment or completely parking the vehicle up and not using it at all. And then when you think back now to the, to the interplane operating manager, he has a vehicle that perhaps his guys don't want to use. Also, he has guys that perhaps injure themselves and injure their backs because the wheels got caught in the expansion gap as you were pulling the carriage <laughs> across the floor. So all of these things are very, very important to us over here. And these little details make a big difference. Uh, and it's that kind of thing that we've worked on really hard over the years, really born from trying to make the job easier and simpler uh, and that's where we're at. And that's why we have a lot of products here and a lot of things that we do here are quite different because we have, Tom already said it, this kind of health and safety focus. And we also have this, this kind of nurture nature 
that Tom mentioned too, whereupon things have naturally developed. So, you know, on that subject, to give you an example, a fueling nozzle that plugs onto an aeroplane on the underside of the wing to put fuel in, well, typically a fueling nozzle is made up of an assembly of different component parts and the user will choose which components he likes to get his nozzle variants. So ordinarily, this is two or three components bolted together or plugged together in one of two ways, say a flanged connection or the more later nozzles have got swivel ball bearing connections to make the nozzles easier to use and a bit more ergonomic for the operator. So with our nozzle, to give you an example, there's 39 ball bearings in this swivel. And essentially what you do is you have to undo the plug and then you rotate the two halves and the balls drop out under gravity and into the retaining dish or whichever it might be and you can separate the two halves. This story actually isn't one of my own, but a good friend and a, an old colleague of mine, but he was in a workshop in, in a facility here and, and the workshop technician was separating the two halves of the nozzle. And just before he did it, and before he started to remove these ball bearings, he screwed into the side of the nozzle, this little white container, which was essentially, I think you'd call it a, a, like a correction fluid bottle. And he had put his own little thread on it and he screwed it in and he started to waggle this nozzle and all the balls fell out. And, you know, my, my colleague looked at him and said, what on earth are you doing? And, and the mechanic said, well, if I don't collect the balls, they'll all fall on the floor. I don't know if there were 39 in there or if there were 27 or 38 or, or whatever. Sometimes they'll drop on the floor and I'll spend half an hour looking for them. So this little container collects all the balls. I know I've got exactly the right amount and it's easy for me to put them back in and I've put the correct amount back in afterwards as well. And it's just a brilliant example whereupon some of these guys that really think about this job and do this job regularly thought about how do we make the job easier? Now that simple little idea was then turns into what we commonly use now and we have our own a ball tool and every garage around the patch now uses a ball tool to collect the ball bearings. So it, it's one of those examples whereupon and Tom mentioned it too, these kind of career mechanics. So I'm, I'm going to age myself a touch now, but I first started out in this industry more than 25 years ago. And some of those technicians that I met in my first few weeks of starting in the industry are still doing the same job. Uh, and that's the big difference is these guys are working on this stuff weekly, daily, taking this equipment apart and, and seeing it through its lifetime. Uh, and looking after it appropriately and with some tender loving care as daft as that sounds. And from that kind of mindset is where all of these tools and all of these little carriage assemblies and things that we talk about have really been born over here. And it's made for now really a, a nice set of products 20, 30 years on. Richard, how, how does, you're not wrong in what you say, but how much of that contributes? I mean, I, I look at our differences in yeah, you've got the career guys over there, but it, it's exactly that. You've got career guys there. And in the U.S., yeah, we've got a few career guys, but the large percentage is, for lack of better terms, transient. Uh, they're not with you, you know, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years outside of maybe the top five or 10 percent of a, of a roster of operators. I mean, that's a, that's one of the biggest variances is, OK, we've got a guy who is getting paid a wage to work outside, standing under a wing in any weather conditions every day of the year, that's getting the paid the same wage as someone who's working in the airport flipping burgers at McDonald's versus you've got operators there in Europe who are getting a career wage and 
are sticking to it. I mean, there, there's a big difference in driving that too, don't you think? Absolutely. And, you know, I think about it. I mentioned these guys have been doing this job for so long, and, and that's not just England. That's all the countries I travel to. And, and we shouldn't underestimate the importance of, of a properly maintained and well-cared-for piece of fueling equipment. You know, we've got hydrant couplers that you said earlier, Tom, are dragging fuel out of the hydrant system at 150 PSI. We've got fueling nozzles pushing fuel onto an aircraft at more than 3,000 US GPM a minute, um, you know, and, and we really need these guys to know what they're doing. So actually, I'm thankful that we have this kind of, of depth of knowledge of our technical staff here, these guys that have been around for so long um, and, and their expertise and the consistency in their approach to maintaining equipment, because, you know, these are very important bits of kit. And just think about the ramifications of something being um, poorly handled or certainly poorly maintained when it's connected to the aircraft and suddenly it's spring, springing a link or detaching or or not controlling pressure. You know, the, the results can be disastrous. So so it's a very different approach. Um, and I'm thankful that over here we do have these these career guys that have kind of helped the product develop over the years. And, and you know, also, I think from, from my point of view, I mean, I like the way that their their ingenuity and their dedication to our products over the years drive us on now tom does a great job of piloting what we're doing and and you know a lot of what we do these days in terms of the of the tools that we have and the support material we have the design changes we've made to our existing equipment and our future equipment is all kind of taken to a degree um, from some of the inspirations these guides give us and the feedback these give us to tell us where we need to go next so I'm pleased that we've got these kind of guys around and that we have this culture here in our part of the world. Do you see that changing, Richard? I mean, COVID, you know, let's let's get the, the, the big animal in the house right now uh, that's got the world kind of in its grasp, at least in aviation and aviation fueling. I mean, is this going to affect your culture? It, it, are you going to lose people because of this? I, I've seen, you know, just some people I'm associated with on LinkedIn that have left the industry now. So is your market going to change and become more like the U.S.? Or do you think y'all are some years away from that? Because I, I think the U.S. is trying to move to slowly. So we we were a nurture nature. We did do a lot of overhauls and stuff in shops and we had that content. We've got, we've got great, a, a small handful of great technicians out there uh, that really know what they're doing. And for a while there, shops would send the stuff out to get repaired versus doing it themselves. And now we're starting to see that shift where they're doing it more. Do you see kind of as the market matures there in, the, in Europe and it shifts on how it's paid for, it's paid more for the airlines who are a lot more money conscious probably than the oil companies when it comes to that piece of it uh, and driving the price down. Do you see that shifting there? I think you might be right, Tom. Uh, as a, as we say, that this, this nurture culture is deep within um, our our general culture here and how we work. So I think still we're lucky we have, you know, JIG, the Joint Inspection Group, which keep us on the straight and narrow and they continue to guide us and, and help us along the way. We've got um, some, some huge oil companies and some great technical teams within these oil companies which are driving their operations correctly. And, and I think we will continue 
with our nurture nature. For sure, a lot of these guys that have been around as long as I will start sadly through this COVID era, perhaps um, coming out of this system. Let's hope I'm not one of them, by the way, because I did age myself a touch earlier. So a lot of these guys might start to disappear, but still it's inbred in the way we do things that we will nurture the product and we will continue to service it appropriately. So hopefully that won't be lost. I think what it might mean is that we will start to be asked more questions. Our support might have to fill some of the gaps. So again, it's a challenge for us as, as manufacturers of the equipment to make sure that we're sharing our knowledge um, as appropriate as we can and supporting our customers as best we can. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we can, doing that, I, I think there's more of the global industry coming together and those leaders stepping up to, to guide the industry as a global. So we can can learn from each other. So we can take the stuff we're talking about today uh, and in this series of podcasts, and we can we can build on it and say, okay, oh well, this is how they're doing it there. There's there's good things to take from it, uh, and I think we'll see that adoption. But it's it's a long process. It's just not going to just happen overnight. So we've got to stick with it. But unfortunately, everybody wasn't on the on the conversation we were having prior to this starting. But Richard <laughs> saying, you know, they do it better over there, and to a lot of degrees, I think there are a lot of things that are done better in the European marketplace than in the US marketplace, for sure. Sorry to interrupt, Tom. I didn't think we were going there, but since you said it, <laughs> yes, we do. I just want to put it out there. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to disagree with you completely, but I think they're just like there are some things that y'all do so much better. I think there's things the US can learn, but I also think there's some things that the the European or the global marketplace can take from the the U.S. marketplace uh, is we're doing everything. Uh, you know, one of the things you know, and I and I see it is, and, and I see some of our standards moving that direction uh, with some of the different committees I sit on and stuff. But it's controlled to the nth degree in Europe, and it's a little bit more left up to the operator on some things, not on processes, but just on on exactly how you do things, and that's good and bad. Uh, there's some things that it's really good in, you know, and, and we'll talk about that as we get into some of the standards discussions uh, later in this podcast uh, series. But uh, yeah, I think there's things we can take from each other. Uh, and to, to pick up on your point, I think you're right, Tom, in many ways, it could it be that perhaps in your side of the world there, there are some things that we've done and our operation has meant that we've naturally migrated that way. And we mentioned carriage assemblies. Now, you guys don't need them, but have they been necessary? And we're going to speak about various different topics. So not to jump into, for example, vehicle design, but you know we tend to drive around airports in vehicles regularly and we can't park necessarily right next to the pit with a vehicle. But in the US, you, know, you have the smaller carts and the carts are much more closely um, parked to the pits and they've got a much more closer proximity to the pit. So perhaps it's meant that our style and the way we do things and our and our inherent need on trucks means that we've got to drag the couplers that much further. Um, and therefore we do need things like the carriage assemblies and maybe you're only schlupping them a couple of feet as opposed to us <laughs> having to schlup them for a lot of feet a lot of feet more. So you know maybe there's things that we've done and you've not necessarily needed to and some of that is why there's such a difference, perhaps. For sure, I, I think that's that's going to be a, a great conversation uh, to have. I mean, there there are a lot of variances in how that affects the the choice. I mean, it, let's look at it because you're in a truck, and a lot of the U.S. is stationary carts. It changes the weight of it at all as well because you have a two and a half inch hose versus a four inch hose, 
and that's significant weight and that's significant weight of fuel in the hose. So it does make a difference. Um, again, I think we could, we could, we could continue to talk about this all day and you can continue to tell me, you know, Europe's better. And, and to some degree, I, uh, some degree, to some that. degree, to some degree, I will agree with you. Well, this is an American podcast. Tyler's going to cut me off if I say too much more. So let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I had some time, so I looked up the 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 uh, the origin of the word schlep, S C H L E P, and it's a uh, it, it, it's a German word, so uh, so it does come from Richard's side of the <laughs> Richard's side of the pond. Uh, so <laughs> I'm English, not German, sadly. <laughs> it's true. It's it, it's true. Uh, but it but it it does from uh, it comes from the continent. Let's say so. Uh, and and just so I can put everything Tom said into perspective for me, please, Tyler. It means what to move something from A to B. Is that what Tom said? Miriam Webster says to proceed or move especially slowly, tediously, awkwardly, or carelessly. Oh, there you go. So, you know... Uh, that, that nails it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. not perfect. <laughs> so, I, I think it was a good word to, to use for that particular uh, that particular example. But, uh, but I know that there are also differences around rules and regulations and different governing bodies, right? Here in the United States, we have OSHA. I believe in Europe, you have HSSE. Are there differences there in, in some of the rules and regulations when it comes to safety and, and things along along those lines. We've talked primarily just about, um, you know, how things developed and maybe some of the differences in workforce and, and culture and how that has played itself out. But do the rules and regulations also play a, play a part in, in the differences between these two regions? They want everything lighter and, <laughs> and faster and easier in Europe. And not that that's wrong, but um, it can become a challenge. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're finally listening to me, Tom. But to pick up on something <laughs> that Tom said previously, um, you know, Tom's quite correct. You know, in in our part of the world, if something's too heavy and an operator hurts himself, then the the HSAC kind of regulations means that now suddenly the operator, the the, the manager of the facility, now has got a big problem in his hands because he has an employee who's hurt himself, and there's some recourse, of course, and then there's some procedures, so on and so forth, and that causes them a huge headache. It does play a huge part in what we do here. And that's why so many of our products are so well thought. As crazy as it might sound, you know, if the if the lever of the poppet springs back too quickly and suddenly injures their thumb, then suddenly that means that those nozzles, that brand of nozzle that caused this issue, would be removed from that whole fleet of vehicles very, very quickly. So all of these things have an effect. And we have to think about how we do things because we need it to be user-friendly, but we also need it to be light and ergonomic and to make sure that we don't cause these kind of injuries in the field. The, the slight, slightly difficult balancing act is that by the same token, we, we need this equipment to be robust and hardy and used daily in all weathers and under all conditions. So how you make something that is that durable yet at the same time, light, ergonomic, and user-friendly is a bit of a difficult juggling act. It's, it's made of unobtainium. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's can you meet all the demands? And yeah, it, it's for sure, I think that plays a part. And, you know, I, I look at it and people always ask, oh, you're heavier, you're heavier. Man, when we put it on a scale, the difference is minimal and what we offer from our competitors. Um, and it's so close. And I don't know that anybody could really tell a difference if they're of, a, of, of half a pound or a pound when they're lifting something over their head that weighs 35 or 40 pounds with the weight of the hose and fuel. But 
apparently we've got some people with some really well calibrated shoulders that, you know, have a scale built in that can tell us that. Um, and, and I like to make, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll make light of it all day long. It's, it's fun, but it's still serious. I mean, I, I ran operations. I dealt with injuries. So anytime, anything we can do to improve that, and if that's in the, how the operator uses it, Richard talked about some of the features there. I think that's important. You know, in some of our stuff, we have to take into consideration that how people are using it because some of it's designed to fail. It gets to a certain point, it's supposed to fail. How it's being used and taking into consideration how users are doing that because of the ergonomics and because of the health and safety, a coupler will last a whole lot longer. Uh, and a coupler is an item that's designed to fail. It'll last a whole lot longer in Europe when it's being used on a carriage in a clad than it will from an operator in the US dropping it a foot and a half above the hydrant pit valve onto the pit valve when it's designed to fail. And then to take that just a stage further, Tom, as well, you know, when you've got a workshop which is maintaining this equipment regularly and, and following the manuals and doing it to the letter of the law, they'll need then a gauge to make sure that they're checking to make sure that the coupler's within certain wear limits and it's not gone to the point where it is about to fail. So, you know, that again, that nurture culture that we have to build and rebuild these things and nurture it through its life means that now we need tools to do the job correctly and effectively as well. And and so it goes on and so on and so forth. But if we didn't have that that nurturing nature that we have here and it was the throwaway kind of it's got to the end of life and let's just replace it, then people wouldn't have a way of gauging these things. So again, that nature that we keep talking about and I keep coming back to is, has driven us forward, driven the industry forward, but driven us as a company forward as well and has continually challenged us to make our products better and to offer more tools and more resources for people to do the job properly in the field. For, for sure, I think the feedback from the field uh, that we get from the marketplace there, Richard, and, and what you've brought it has been incredible for us as an organization and for our product because we are getting the feedback. Uh, we don't necessarily get all the feedback in the U.S. It doesn't make it up the chain. You've mentioned it. The guys there are going to complain about it. Uh, we, 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 have some, we have some jokes occasionally that they can't handle it, but it's, they're at least giving us the information. Get, having that feedback because, oh, the, as I rotate it, my thumb hit this, hit this piece of the nozzle. Okay, well, in the U.S., the guys are just going to keep going and they're not going to care and they'll just modify and, and keep going. So, uh, yeah, for sure, I think there's some some variances in there and, and ways we can learn. And the feedback, like I said, has been incredible from the marketplace. Sorry, Tom, I have this preconception that all of you operators over there are like Desperate Dan, if you, if you have that, that comic character, you know, with big muscles like Popeye, because seemingly nothing <laughs> seems to be an issue for them over there. But over here, it's a very different story. Uh, again, safety is important. And I think the organizations, the end of plane organizations are paying attention to safety and it's important to them. They're not ignoring safety. Uh, they're working within the letter of the law. Injuries are costly. They look for ways to reduce injuries. And I think there's cues we can take from your marketplace, um, even though they might add a little bit of expense in the long run. It's a whole lot better to take that expense up front in the component and in the equipment than it is on an operator in the health of the operator, which is the most important. You know, we, we, want, a, we want an operator to, as uh, a, a human and as a person to be safe, go home in the same condition they arrived in work, uh, maybe a little tired, but you know, would not hurt. Um, and we want the aircraft fueled safely. So if we're meeting human safety and aircraft safety uh, in this fueling process, you know, that's the important thing. 
Tom, from your perspective, and and I can only I can only speak on this from from an American point of view, but uh, but there are times when you know we joke around about uh, whose way is better and who's doing things better and that sort of thing, and <laughs> and you know and, and we have we have fun with that, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know we can we can have those conversations and have those debates, but is there uh, maybe an attitude uh, at least on our side over here in the United States of you know that uh, that quote unquote maybe uh, American exceptionalism where we just do things better because we're American and that makes learning from one another challenging. Have you noticed that attitude at all? Is that something that you have to combat as, as you try to consistently, you know, improve operations and improve how we do things here? No, it's just people having the desire to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, I think that's really it. It's, it's a desire to change. The U S marketplace has to have a desire to change. And when you have a transient workforce that's trained by people that have only been doing it for six months, Okay, in some organ- some locations it longer, but when I was fueling airplanes three or four months in, they started putting new hires with me to train. And I'm training them the way I learned. So they're not, you're not progressing it with this career knowledge. You're not teaching them from the beginning. And, and whoever trains them, trains the operator in those first days, it leaves the impression on them. Uh, and that's just how they're going to do it. And so I think what, you, what happens is you build up this culture and a desire not to change occurs. Oh, we've always done it this way. Does does the way they do it? Okay, it might be better, but we're not doing it wrong. But it's not about doing it right or wrong. It's about doing it better. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And, and Richard, have you noticed that uh, that as well? Just um, is is there a I, I suppose a willingness to learn from from other parts of the world or, or, or things along those lines, or you know, you, you kind of talked about how Europe is already, you know, maybe doesn't have the same issues with the transient workforce that the United States has, and so you're kind of already on that path. But is, is there a willing to look at a willingness to look at you know maybe how things are, are done here in the United States and adjust certain things as um, you know as improvements come around? Oh, for sure. We spoke, I think, in the last webinar, and Tom, Tom touched on it about globalization and standardization across you know the the operating policies here and in the US one of the problems if you want to say that is that we've got two different sets of operating policies um, but that being said it means we've got input from all sides and we do have this globalization and harmonization process underway now where we are learning from each other so it's not that we do it brilliantly well necessarily we do it differently for sure I think we might be ahead a little bit because we've been doing it this way for so long that I think a lot of the, the, the clever things that we do and a lot of the things in which the way the products have evolved have been due to our culture here. But it doesn't mean to say that we do it necessarily right all the time. Um, so there's for sure things that we can learn from both sides. Um, and ultimately, if we can have the same way of fueling world over, then that's probably the goal. Um, ultimately, a, a safe and efficient way of fueling, no matter where you land, is probably the right way forward. It's a really long way from it, but still, I'm sure there's things we can learn from both sides. Uh, they're, they're trying to put us all out of business, Richard, and try to make <laughs> battery-operated airplanes, so someone will just have to plug in the power cord at some point. Mm, we need to get into the battery <laughs> business, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, any, any final thoughts, any conclusions as we start to wrap up this episode here, just talking more about uh, health and safety and the cultural aspects and differences between the United States and Europe. Any final thoughts, anything you want to say in closing today? I'll, I'll close with, look, I, I, I stick to human safety and aircraft safety is the most important. I think we can learn from each other. And as we have uh, harmonization of the, of the standards to have a more global standard, as, as Richard mentioned, 
Um, I think that's important. I think they take into consideration HSSC and, and OSHA requirements into that as well. Because again, everybody's looking at human safety. I don't think any organization would put that to the side. And I think that the more that we can adopt better practices from each other, the better. The U.S. can for sure learn from our counterparts there. Um, and I think there's they can be learned the other way as well. Um, and we can come back to how that affects our product, but it's not just our product that it affects. I think there's, as an industry as a whole, we have a lot to continue learning from each other and we have to be willing to share our knowledges and not hold on to them and be the only one that knows it. Uh, that's the only way we're going to grow the industry. It's the only way we're going to get to, it's the only way we're going to grow that technical basis by sharing our knowledge um, and not just holding on to it and thinking we're, we're, our idea is the only way that's the right idea. Richard, any final thoughts or a response to, uh, to Tom's comments? Well, as usual, I, I think I find myself in this position a lot. Tom said it all and said it very eloquently. Uh, and I don't think there's too much I can add, but I do, I do see already you know, in my time of working with Tom, a lot of the things that we do here, Tom's adopting um, very well and pushing to when he sees it makes sense to, to his users in the American market. And I do see that there will be over time a leveling. You know, we've spoken a lot about clads, we've spoken about um, carriage assemblies, we've spoken about tools to, a, to an extent, and there are many other scenarios and many other examples whereupon Tom's taken a lot of what we're doing and what we might ordinarily consider here as being normal, and, and is now suggesting that to a lot of the users there, and I think it's well appreciated. So ultimately, there'll be a leveling over time, together with harmonization in terms of standards and and. Um, globalization of policies, it will start to level out ultimately. So we'll get to where we want to be in the time. It's taking time, but we'll get there. Well, Tom, Richard, guys, thank you so much for joining us here on the uh, the podcast again for, for episode two as we take a look at the differences uh, between the United States and Europe when it comes to uh, to airplane uh, airplane fueling uh, operations. Guys, it's always a pleasure to get a chance to, uh, to talk to both of you, and, uh, and we appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it as well, Tyler, taking the time to join us this morning and kind of guide this discussion with us. Thank you, Tyler. And uh, coming up on future episodes of the podcast, like uh, like the guys mentioned, we'll get into standards, uh, a couple of other uh, topics. We might bring on uh, some other guests as well to provide some expertise. Uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing Tom and Richard debate the metric system. Uh, but uh, but we'll have to uh, we'll have to hold off on that for uh, for another Rich, Rich, Richard's in no place to debate the metric system. They use metric and standard over there, so I don't want to hear it. <laughs> well, uh, stay tuned for that debate on upcoming episodes. But if you're not subscribed to the Valve Chronicles uh, to get these episodes and to get the thought leadership from these guys uh, as soon as we drop the episodes. Make sure to go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Wherever you get your podcasts these days, make sure to uh, subscribe there to stay up to date with the latest from Clay Val. And stay tuned because we'll be back soon with those new episodes. But until then, for Tom and Richard, I'm Tyler Kern. We'll talk to you again soon.